I am Simone Cipriani and I am an officer of the United Nations. And I'm Claire Press and I'm a sustainable fashion journalist. You are listening to the Ethical Fashion Podcast. We can change the world. This is the last of our four themed episodes that come out of the Ethical Fashion Initiative Hackathon. Regular listeners will have heard us mention this before. But actually, Simone, what's been happening with it lately? Well, there are a few pitches uh, for investors on new ideas for sustainability that came out of the hackathon. Three of these pitches, in total we have six of them, they are on uh, implementing new sustainability systems in the supply chain. One is about empowering workers, one is about allowing brands to better and, and retailers to better control their supply chains. They are now being presented while we speak to investors. Three of them already have an investor uh, wow. for each of them. And yes, an angel investor for each of them. One of them will probably be an investment target also for us, for the EFI. So we are now in the middle of it, exactly in the process of discussing with investors about that. So it's a very concrete and it was a very concrete and result-oriented thing, this hackathon. We got to develop ideas and these ideas will see life. It's brilliant. There were four themes. I love that there is yes. practical outcomes and you've got these things now getting up off the ground. But there were four themes and this is the last one. It is social and environmental sustainability standards. But why do we need to talk about this? Because When I first came at this cold, I was like, but we have standards, right? I mean, off the top of my head, I can think of loads of environmental ones that are widely used and understood. For example, the Better Cotton Initiative that has literally hundreds of signatories, brands and retailers. And then you might think about the global organic textile standards, so GOTS cotton. And while that's not as widely used, people understand it, right? Or if you want to go fair trade, there's that standard. Or for chemicals and dyes, I know there's zero discharge of hazardous chemicals, but then there's also blue sign. Yes, yes. And I am very happy that you will be interviewing Jill Dumain, who is the CEO of Blue Sign in this episode. She's a relevant person in this. And and yes, you're right. In general, Claire, uh, there are many, many environmental standards. But on the labor side, we also have many standards and instruments. We have to remind that the International Labor Organization is the oldest UN organization. They celebrated their 100th anniversary in 2019. They have a wealth of initiatives dedicated to protecting workers from the government sector, like Better Work, uh, which is a very important one, but they also have elaborated a corpus, as we say in legal terms, of standards, which is very important and which derives exactly from the human rights framework. Because today we have, well, let us not forget that we have an international human rights bill from which, so we have a corpus, a juridical corpus of normative corpus about human rights from which we have these labor standards that are extremely important. The point is that uh, CEOs, decision makers in the industry may be confused about the abundance of environmental labor standards and initiatives. And that's why I think it's important to have a tool to frame all them within the business model of the company so that decision makers in the fashion industry can really apply them in their supply chains. This is, by the way, something we are developing, a tool, a practical tool to take these existing standards and to facilitate the work for CEO and chief sustainability officers to apply them in their supply chains. There won't be any excuse after that. Eh? Uh, confusion, no. <laughs> it's not really a good enough excuse anyway, is it? Sorry, I'm confused. No excuse I mean, anyway, you've got to do it. I mean, I suppose what we're looking at here is that there are good corporate citizens and that there are bad actors or those who are trying to dodge the regulations and the standards. But No, absolutely, absolutely. And then there is the responsibility of governments because legislation on many things right. still lies with governments. So we also have the responsibility of all the governments where the huge supply chain of fashion extends also in parts of the so-called developing world. So it's a global responsibility, really, the frame 
framework is there, but it's about applying this framework in national legislation, in the activities of the companies, and so on. There are also private initiatives, such as the Fair Labor Association, that has uh, pioneered and uh, promoted the 10-point code of conduct for fair labor in the fashion industry, successfully involving many important brands in their work. So the tools are there. Can I just ask you what your opinion is? Why do you think that they aren't universally taken up? I mean, what do we need to do to get the whole fashion industry on board? Well, in my opinion, it's about the business model of the fashion industry. The business model is a business model uh, structured on minimizing the cost of goods sold, which is to say the cost of the product. So it's about uh, farming out production to the lowest cost supplier. And this is why we have these huge, very long supply chains that you cannot control. Mm. So it's about restructuring the business model and the structure of the margins also, where you do the investment and putting a bit more on the cost of production, on producing the product, which is about putting a bit more, not only on the shareholders of the company, but also on the stakeholders of the company. The stakeholders are also consumers, but also workers, people in the supply chain and all the rest. Uh, You know, it may be a bit technical and stop me if it is, but uh, in accounting terms, when you, you, you reach the operating costs, where you have the cost of production plus the general cost, this is the real cost of the business. All what comes after is the cost of marketing and all the rest, but these are the additions, the topping up. And in the balance sheet of in the income statement of the fashion industry today, what comes after the operating cost, what comes after the core business is the biggest part of the income statement. It's where you create all the margins with marketing, with retail, blah, 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 blah. But the point is that we have to go back to the basics, which is how you make things. And this is where sustainability comes from. We've actually got some incredible guests for this episode. Who are you talking to? Well, I'm going to begin by talking to Paola Deda, a fellow Italian like me who's been with the UN for a long while. She now works for the UN Economic Commission for Europe. Paola is a very strong advocate of sustainable fashion. She's part, she's an active member of the UN Alliance for Sustainable Fashion. She organizes event. Together we are organizing an event on circular economy and sustainability in the fashion industry in April 2022. So you'll be listening something from Paola something extremely interesting from her. And the big names keep coming because I'm going to be speaking with Bia Cunha from the ILO. And then on the environmental side, as you mentioned, I'm also talking to the incredible Jill Dumaine from Blue Sign. Hello, today I'm joined by Paula Deda, who is currently the director of the Forests, Land and Housing Division at the UN Economic Commission for Europe in Geneva. Paola has more than 20 years experience with the United Nations, mainly dealing with the environment, and she's passionate about raising public awareness on sustainable fashion. Welcome, Paola. Hello, Simone, and good morning to everybody. My first question, it's about, it's a very broad one. What, in your opinion, are the problems with the environmental standards we already have for use in the fashion industry? Well, Simone, actually, at the moment, we have even too many standards that do not really cover the whole length of the value chain. Very often standards cover manufacturing, including, you know, textile dyeing and sewing, but not the stages before that, like fiber production, weaving and spinning, or end-of-life stages, including recyclability and biodegradability. The major brands and retailers lack also transparency on social environmental issues. And this is often due to extremely complex supply chains, with contractors and subcontractors who are located in different countries. As you know, without transparency and implementation of mandatory standards along the full length of the value chain, the consumer can never really know the full impact of clothing production and so of what they buy. Of course, there are some initiatives to educate consumers about different labels and what they mean, Take, for example, Good or New, who rates companies' social and environmental performance, or the Swiss website Label Info that helps you to sort of shed light on the different labels and standards. But in general, 
consumers really lack easily and accessible information. Uh, Simona, you know I wrote about this and I was calling for a fashion passport. What we need is to tell the origin, the sustainability of the material and the use of chemicals, the recyclability of a garment and its impact. So most of the time we need to do our homework now to ensure that we don't buy something only because it's beautiful or fashionable and affordable, but also because it's sustainable and long-lasting. So now we do the work ourselves. We hope that eventually we will have a fashion passport or a certification for our garments so we know what we are buying. Indeed, that's a very good point. And maybe a fashion passport based on a chip that is embedded into the clothes or the fabric or the accessories we buy. That's a very good idea, Paola. We are working on it together. But getting back to the supply chain, I want to touch the problem of, of greenwashing. How much of a problem is it? What about also the varying, the different definitions that we have today around sustainability, sustainable fashion, eco-fashion, circular fashion, and so on? I know this is, this is something you raised recently in uh, the magazine, the official magazine of the UN staff in Geneva, which is called the UN Today. Well, yes, yes. Thank you, Simone. Indeed, I did. I did because greenwashing is a major problem and consumers need to remain vigilant and not to fall in its trap. We have to be careful uh, that something unsustainable is not repackaged to look acceptable or even, as you say, green. For instance, we can no longer uh, justify producing and buying polyester. We have enough scientific evidence to prove how damaging this material is to the environment. You know that even recently a study of the University of Manchester published in Science a study saying that most of the microplastic that is polluting the seas originates from textile and clothing. So this is a major problem. And when it comes to fabrics, there are clear choices. Also, clothes are produced sometimes very far away, but consumers need to be able to trust the claims made by the brands. And this is where the authentication, the, the certification from third parties is extremely important. Uh, there cannot be any trust without transparency and traceability, and we always speak of that. Full transparency can be achieved, and uh, for instance, with the help of blockchain technology. Yes. Um, as far as definitions are concerned, well, you know, there are a plethora of definitions, and this is not particularly helpful for the buyer, especially where words are not followed by action. Most problems in the industry, social, environmental, um, cannot be tackled by brands alone and are not solved by selling sustainable or eco-fashion. Um, implementing, for instance, a circular economy and circular practices in the fashion and textile industry is actually a mammoth task that requires government regulations and standards in different areas such as design, waste management, recycling infrastructure, for instance. Indeed, a lot of work to be done, a lot of work to be done also on the side of the brands in changing the business model and make it more sustainable. And also a lot of work to be done on our side. At the end of the day, you and I, we belong to the UN Alliance for Sustainable Fashion. And we are working actively together to offer this kind of guidance to governments, to private sector and so on, to all stakeholders of this industry and also to consumers. And, and talking about the UN, talking about the fact that at the end of the day, we are two UN officers. We know that UN are about peace, human rights and the sustainable development goals. Some of these goals are very close to the work that we do and to the issue of sustainable fashion. Let's have a chat around them and particularly around uh, sustainable development goal eight, which is about good jobs and economic growth and sustainable development goal 12, which is about responsible consumption. Sure. Well, actually, uh, for those that are not uh, like me and you, Simone, of the UN family, um, let me just briefly say that there are 17 sustainable Indeed, development bravo. goals uh, yes, that are part of this UN agenda, how we call it, uh, for sustainable development, Horizon 2030. 
So there are 169 targets, actually, to inspire action at the different levels of government, and they are in critical areas that we say for people and the planet, eh? spanning from ending poverty to ensuring healthy lives, gender equality, sustainable economies, and as you say, reducing inequalities and looking at work-related issues, including action, of course, to tackle climate change. You mentioned SDG 12. Well, SDG 12 probably is the most relevant for fashion as it commits to ensuring sustainable consumption and production patterns and is structured actually over eight targets that really address issues that are relevant to fashion, like the use of natural resources, chemical waste, fossil fuels, and the integration of sustainable practice into the production cycle. It also addresses, of course, the consumer side uh, to addressing how to better aware of sustainable development issues and how to choose responsibly. That in fashion is, is essential. And changing production and consumption in the fashion sector would have a dominant effect in many aspects of development. And that's why we, our message, that if we act on fashion, we can actually bring benefits to the whole range of SDGs and sustainable development goals. But specifically for SDG 12, reducing fast fashion, and so slowing down and producing long-lasting garments could provide an important contribution to climate. Let me give you just an example. It was estimated that extending the average life of clothes by just nine months could reduce carbon, water, and waste footprints by 20 to 30 percent. So you can definitely see the link. You mentioned also SDG 8 to promote inclusive and sustainable economic growth. Of course, improving and working the condition of fashion workers is a crucial step in this regard, and we heard about this several times. Of course, this goes hand in hand with responsible policies, rule of law, and an increasing engaged and motivated workforce. But also let me touch quickly on, on two other SDGs. I don't want to focus too much yes, on Yes, yes, no, no, please, please do it, do it. Uh, 14 and 15, uh, they are focusing respectively on conservation of marine and land ecosystems, the harvesting or the production of materials for fashion, think about dyeing and processing to produce clothes and accessory are all highly polluting and consume high quantities and levels of natural resources such as energy, water, land as well, and biodiversity. So um, it's really important that we keep this in mind when making fashion, but also when buying fashion. Last but not least, SDG3, as we are talking about health, a lot lately, uh, well, with promoting the well-being for all ages and, and health for all ages, you can certainly see the link with chemicals used in fashion that are highly toxic, not only for the workers, but also for those wearing some garments. For the whole community, and, for the consumers, you are absolutely right. Well, you know, Simone, for instance, it was estimated that 10% of skin conditions are related to the chemicals used in our clothes and accessories. That's not minor. Indeed. And I would like to get back to your daily job, to your present area of expertise, which is forests. What's the relation between fashion and forests? What can fashion learn from the story of regulating forest management? The lessons for the forest sector were learned in the 80s, actually, when forest managers had to respond to the strong criticism waged against them by environmental NGOs, and indeed all the concerned citizens. The criticism is not actually dissimilar to what is occurring right now in the fashion sector. Well, the focus is really on cheap and, and badly protected labor and unsustainable environmental practice. The forest sector has learned actually the hard way at the time to be more positive and proactive and learned that First of all, nothing can happen until the actual situation is acknowledged. What I also learned that everyone in the chain, right up to the consumer, must be involved in the discussion, and that's essential. And also learned that it's possible to devise instruments to create consensus, monitor progress, and build trust. So, give you an example, in the forest sector, we have national forest programs and criteria and also indicators of sustainable forest management based on really serious statistical efforts. The forest sector created independent certification and full traceability schemes. They are possible. 
uh, can mention, for instance, the program for endorsement of forest certification, PFC, and the Forest Stewardship Council, FSC. You probably are aware of them because whenever you open a package of paper or when you look at um, uh, you know, packages, you, you will see their logos. And this is the way they became known to the people and they were put on the market. And something similar could, of course, be done, as we said, for, for fashion, for a fashion passport or for certification. But let me tell you also that there is another very important link between fashion and, and, and forest, and it's really about material and materials use, because uh, many people don't know that forests provide very important raw materials for the fashion sector, what is called the man-made cellulosic fiber, uh, the MMCFs, very difficult to pronounce, yes. such as uh, viscous, rayon, lyocell, modal, some of them are really uh, last generation sort of materials that are very much used now in fashion. And the forest fibers, as I call them, to, to find an expression that's easier, uh, value chain has actually the potential to tackle some of the apparel and broader textile industry's most significant challenges. I don't want to get into much in, in the details of that, but um, you know there were two initiatives that we at the UN um, created to bring to the attention of the larger public uh, the, the potentials of forest fibers. One was called Forest for Fashion. Forest for Fashion, yes. And it was a collaboration between us and the UN, the FAO, and uh, PFC, along with other partners like the UN Forum on Forest or Chita del Arte Fashion Best. And um, another initiative was a video that we developed with uh, world-renowned actress and UNDP Goodwill Ambassador Michelle Yeo. Michelle Yeo. It's called Made in Forest. And that's it. That video provides information on the impact of different materials on the environment and actually the sustainability of some forest fibers. And, and Paula, I know this is, this is a very serious conversation about regulation, forest sustainability, the future of the humankind. But I know, I have seen a photograph of yours wearing an incredible dress designed by Tiziano Guardini. You wore, if I am not mistaken, you wore that dress at the opening of the forest for fashion that you just mentioned. You look looked like an extraordinary tree yourself. What was that dress? <laughs> well, well, thank you, Simone. And you see, once you're on the internet, you're there forever, so it's difficult to escape. <laughs> um, well, we are talking about fashion after all, right? So yes, the dress I was wearing was really a piece of art, Simone. And, it was. Uh, uh, we used it to give really visibility to the event in, in a symbolic way, if you wish, right? We are talking for Forest for Fashion and the dress was made of bark, little pieces of bark. Of bark, of bark tree. Bark, bark tree, yeah, all, all glued together. The message behind the, the event and the dress is that beauty needs creativity and sustainable solutions, right? And we need to think differently. I also wanted to project a modern image of what the UN is doing and, and to send a message out that uh, even if we were discussing something extremely serious as the impact of fashion on environment, we still could, uh, could be part of that world, the fashionable world, and, and not only to preach to the converted, as I used to say, within the UN, but really uh, it was also to show that the study that we had developed could translate into reality. What we were saying about forest fibers could also become a reality. And last but definitely not least, Simone, it was also a message to move away from the big names of fashion and look at what young generations could do. And Their that's another potential. very good point. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and that the event actually gathered uh, several young designers who were all asked to produce and design something made of forest fibers. And uh, it was an event for them to show the creative potential and the potentials of the material. So, of course, the dress is not commercialized. Uh, as you can imagine, it would not be the most comfortable piece to wear at work. Huh? Yes. But uh, we yes. were glad yeah. we could that use it. That would be difficult. It. <laughs> it's a bit difficult, but it's, it's, you know, we were glad we could use it as a symbol of, of the Force for Fashion message. Fantastic. Paula Deda there. 
And we've put a YouTube link to the UN short film with Michelle Yeoh, Made in Forests, in the podcast description. Next, more on the environmental side, I called up Jill Dumain from Blue Sign to ask about fashion and water. Why does it matter? What's being done to regulate it? And how can brands take action? Hi, everyone. I'm happy to be joining you. I'm Jill Dumain from Blue Sign Technologies, and I'm here in St. Gallen, Switzerland today. Thank you so much for making time to talk with us. I wonder, Jill, if you might begin just by giving us an overview of what Blue Sign does and how it operates. So Blue Sign's goal is to inspire and equip our system partners to be able to perform in the best environmental way for the protection of both the people throughout the supply chain, all the way back to the chemical suppliers, the textile mills, and the environments that they work in. And what areas are you specifically focused on? So we are focused on chemistry is our core competency, the toxicity of chemicals, getting rid of the toxicity, making them safe for people to manufacture and to use throughout the supply chain, as well as the resource productivity. So how much water, how much energy. Jill, I always think about, I gave this speech about water use in the industry and there was this crazy stat that stuck in my head and I've written it down and it was that in 2015 the fashion industry used an estimated 32 million Olympic swimming pools worth of water and I think when we try and picture you know volumes and stats it's hard to imagine but 32 million Olympic swimming pools so we use a lot of it is a lot of water it's a lot of water it's a very water intensive industry that we are in there's no doubt about it starting back to the cotton fields and any natural fiber and the amount of water there through textile dyeing and finishing as well. So the quantities that are required have really come down over the years. And that's one of the measurements Blue Sign looks at as we work with our system partners is what is their measurement per meter? How many liters per meter are they using? And we actually track that with our system partners give them feedback and give them advice on how to make it more efficient and use less water in a specific process. We also presumably pollute a lot of water as well as use a lot of water in the fashion industry. Absolutely. And wastewater treatment is one of the most critical points. One, because in a lot of the production countries, people rely on it for their drinking water, their recreation water, swimming in it, etc., and so it's extremely important that the wastewater treatment plants are in place and adhered to the strictest regulations. I think some of the biggest challenges is where different countries are on their journey, both in industry, in business, sustainability, all of those components. And so you look at a country like Switzerland, you go back 30, 40 years, that's when they had their problems. You're looking at the production countries of today and they have current problems. So when the industry left Switzerland, and it's a far smaller industry than it used to be here for production, the good practices didn't follow. And that's where Blue Sign came into existence. They realized they had all this knowledge. Now production was happening in different parts of the world. So how do we take this knowledge we learned and not let it get left behind the rest of the industry? So I think as the industry has evolved and grown into different regions, the biggest challenge is the ability, the knowledge base, the government's commitment to it, et cetera, to make sure that the same kinds of progress steps are being made around the world. We've heard already on this episode that everyone seems to be worried about the complexity and number of accreditation systems and regulations and that it can be quite hard to kind of grapple with all that. What do you think? I agree. I think we've seen a huge uptick of them in the last 10 years. And I think we've seen where somebody has an idea. There's a group that maybe could work on that, but not exactly the way they wanted to. So they start a new organization or start a new initiative. And I think right now we're seeing the end result of that, where things foundationally aren't that different. But there's enough little things that are different to create this confusion. And I've said it for a long time, and I'll say it again. There's enough work in this industry for anybody and everybody that wants to work on sustainability. But if we could come together and figure out what the points of alignment are, compete in areas that make sense, but not compete and reinvent the wheel every year, 
utilize the foundation that's there, utilize the infrastructure that's in the industry today, and really try to be more collaborative that way and build partnerships so that we're not just creating things that are 10% different than what's already out there. I'd love just to hear a little bit about how you came to this work. Uh, You have a background with Patagonia, the brand. You've been working in this industry and in sustainability for a long time. I'd love to know how you've seen it change. And we've talked about how parts of the industry are certainly improving, but what's your take on that long view? And tell us a bit about how you began too. First of all, I'm, I'm so grateful for the trajectory my career has taken I even get a little teary-eyed thinking about it sometimes because I feel like I landed in the right place at the right time with the right temperament. And Patagonia is known absolutely for the environmental work today, but it wasn't always that way. And Patagonia got its start in the environmental world by giving money to nonprofits that were fighting for conservation, water protection, river protection, dam removal. And then in the early 90s, 1990s is when the company started to really look at the internal processes. What were we doing to these rivers we were trying to protect? What were we doing to these grasslands that we were giving money to on the other side and really starting to bring the business impact with the philanthropy and conservation side of things? And that was when I joined the company was in 1989. So I was just at the beginning of it all. And really, you know, it was, I look back on those days fondly, even though they were a lot of work and we didn't have nearly the resources that we have today to do this work, but it was, it was really exciting because we were writing the rule book in a way of what we could do and we didn't know what we couldn't do. So we just tried things and some worked, some didn't, we had to make left turns and right turns and turn the other way. But it was this time of experimentation and trying to learn as much as we could from outside of our industry to bring it back in to make some of the changes that needed to happen. Where were you looking when you say outside of the industry? It wasn't really typical for a brand to know their cotton farmers at that time. So I had to go to farming conferences, not fashion conferences, but farming conferences to meet the people that were actually growing the cotton to learn about it. And then we made the switch to organic cotton. So we spent a tremendous amount of time going into these different areas to look at some of those pieces. Also, I would say chemistry, that wasn't my strength at all. And during the 90s, we did a lot of work in the fiber development, recycled polyester, organic cotton, hemp from the far reaches of inner China. And then the chemistry piece was always this nut we needed to crack. And we weren't big enough as a company to hire the expertise in-house at that time. So when I learned about Blue Sign right at the beginning in 2000, it was sort of this answer to this piece that we were missing in our looking at the life cycle of a product. We had done really good work on the fiber procurement. We had done a lot of work of what's become known now as the circular economy. It wasn't called that then but a lot of recycled content with closed loop polyester systems that we introduced in the late 90s, early 2000s. And then with Blue Sign coming in, it really filled that one of the last hotspots that we had identified when we looked at the life cycle of a product of bean dyeing and finishing. It sounds like such a no brainer. It's such an obviously good idea from a consumer perspective for brands to get on board with systems like Blue Sign. But how widely is it taken up and is that happening at a fast enough pace? So it's happening at a faster pace now, which is one thing I'm very encouraged about in looking at this longevity again that I've had in the the sustainability world of textiles. I'm now in my 30th year of more than working on sustainable textiles. And it was quite lonely at different parts of time with people coming in and going out. And that was where I, again, this gratefulness of Patagonia's unwavering commitment. I was steady through it all. And so now there's so many resources out there and like maybe even too many because it's a confusion. But I honestly, I believe it's so much better than where we were at any point in the past with choice. So if you're a brand, you can choose so many things to put in your line. And it's an empowerment that brands should grasp and run with because you can influence the lives of people you are never going to meet for the positive, whether it's somebody working in a chemical manufacturer or in a cotton field or in a textile mill, your decisions of what kind of fabrics you're going to use and what kind of systems approaches you're going to put in place. You have a lot of ability to really empower 
the supply chain in a different way. What do you think then is missing from the current system of environmental standards? Obviously, if you want to take part, it's there. If you've got the will, and I guess your organisation is on board, then it's all there for you. But what's missing in this current system, do you think? That's a really good question. Um, Or is it all absolutely hunky-dory? I mean, there must be something missing because there's obviously still problems environmentally. Yeah, there's certainly still a lot of environmental issues that we're grappling with. The thing that maybe is missing is even with the number of companies looking at the importance of bringing sustainability, environmentalism, chemistry into their knowledge base, the majority of the industry still sits outside it. And so you can go to the conferences and be happy you see a thousand people. You can be happy you see 50 mills show up, but there's tens of thousands of textile mills in the in the world. So we still are really at the pinnacle of the industry. And there's a wide base at the bottom that we have to figure out how to get to. So what's the incentive for them? Is it more harsh penalties and stronger regulations? Is it more affordability as things trickle down? It's a combination, of course, but I actually think business has the strongest piece to play. And so if it's prioritized throughout the supply chain, and I include the consumer in that part of that conversation. So if it's easy for a consumer to buy something with a sustainability attribute to it, that's step number one. Even as somebody that tries to promote that in my buying, sometimes it's just hard. And the convenience of not looking for that is very easy. So we need to make it more convenient for the consumers and easier for the consumers to choose this, which means the brands need to put initiative in place and talk about them. And I meet so many brands that don't want to say anything because they're not as good as another one. But everybody starts somewhere and anybody who's doing anything today is doing enough to talk about it. And so we need to be bold. We need to have the NGOs not attack the brands that are trying to find their footing on it. Let's give them a little bit of grace to get going, to understand what they're trying to do. Because the consumers need to know where they can turn to and, and make different purchasing choices. And then that flows all the way down the supply chain. I wonder if we might finish with a couple of stories. I'm going to start with a bad one (laughs) and then perhaps I'll ask you to end with a a more positive one. You joined us in the recent EFI hackathon and you told this extraordinary story, which I'd never heard. And afterwards I looked it up. Please, it's mind boggling. Can you tell us about the Blue Dogs? Absolutely. So... A lot of my job for many, many years throughout my career has been taking information that is difficult to understand and putting it in a language that the consumer, because that was my customer at Patagonia, could understand. And chemistry isn't usually the first topic at a cocktail party people want to hear about. Chemical exposure is less than even chemistry. So this story I found when I was researching for a speech I was giving, and It's entitled The Blue Dogs of Mumbai. And what happened was there was such a lack of wastewater treatment around some of the textile mills that these dogs that were typically strays and light colored were coming out of the river blue. And as best as I could tell when I was doing the research, it started with an Indian publication, but it quickly went international. The Guardian reported on it. The National Geographic reported on it. And for me, as disturbing as it was, it humanized what was going on. And it wasn't just something far away, but it was really impacting a living being. And then you could extrapolate, there's people that are also being impacted by the same thing. And while it's obviously horrific, it's also got this weirdly uncanny visual. I mean, I looked at it and I couldn't stop looking because these dogs look like, the best analogy I've got is that they look like they've been spray painted by Tim Walker for some kind of Vogue shoot. They are baby blue from their ears to their paws. Not a good story though. But the good news about that story, and I will tie together sort of the bad and the good, was it brought the topic of chemistry and the need for wastewater treatment, the need for these words nobody wants to talk about into the mainstream media, into the mainstream press. And each time I've seen that happen over the years, it allows for the next story to come more easily. And for me, you know, having worked in these technical areas of environmental work, trying to get the story across, 
any time that we can bridge that gap so people can understand it in their own language. I'm not a chemist by education, and so I have to do those kinds of things in order to do my job effectively. So I think the good news about what came from stories like that is then the next journalist digs a little deeper and a little deeper and a little deeper. And that I'm very encouraged by that I can speak to journalists today about topics they never would have wanted to speak about five years ago even. I had to raise the blue dogs of Mumbai, but I would love to close on you telling us another good news story, one that is focused on a supplier or on an area that's been cleaned up. So I've known people in this industry for many, many years because it's not that big of an industry and you you know people for a long time. So there's a gentleman that I won't mention his name because I don't have permission to, but I've known him for 30 years and I've been speaking to him about environmentalism for 28 of those 30 years, I would say. And he always kind of put me to the side and put me to the side. And he was in, interested in innovation and the environmental work was whatever. And then I joined Blue Sign and he was very blunt because we've known each other for a long time and could say, Jill, I, I don't really like what Blue Sign's doing. I don't, I don't think it's worthwhile, more or less. So then fast forward another time period and he said, okay, now I've been assigned to go on a Blue Sign audit and I'm going to attend this three-day audit to see what you guys are doing. I said, well, I'm so happy you're continuing your environmental education and I'd be interested to hear what you think afterwards. And he was, you know, blunt, but also like as the CEO, I shouldn't really tell you I don't like what your company's doing. But he came back from this audit. And he's based in California. And he said, Jill, I feel like I'm Patty Hearst. My employees think I've been kidnapped and brainwashed. I went in thinking Blue Sign wasn't worthwhile. And now I've come out thinking it's the best thing ever. With the thoroughness, still matching innovation with environmentalism, we're not saying don't do it instead, just do it including that. So to see these personal turnarounds of people that have been in the industry a very long time and putting the environmental piece second or third, starting to really internalize it and get it and experience it. And if there's anything I can leave the listeners with is to experience as much as you can. Going to those farming conferences was life-changing for me. I learned things I never would learn. This gentleman going on the audit, he learned things he hadn't seen in 30 years in the industry. And so the experiential piece can't be emphasize strongly enough. Now on to the social side. Although, as we'll hear, we need to look at both social and environmental areas together. They don't exist in isolation. Beatrice Cunha, beer to her friends, works for the International Labour Organization, where she's focused on the fashion and textiles industry. Hello, I am Beatrice Cunha and I'm talking to you from Geneva. I work here for the International Labour Organization as a specialist for the textile, clothing, leather and footwear industries. Fantastic. So I was hoping you could begin, for those who may not be aware, with a quick rundown on the role of the ILO in the fashion context. We are an old UN organisation created 101 years ago to promote social justice and guarantee long-last peace. That was at the end of World War II. Our main core function, our main role is to promote social dialogue and to establish the international labor standards that is the base of all labor rights and that can be applied by everyone and everywhere. Uh, those standards are adopted by representatives of governments, employers and workers from all countries in the world during the annual International Labour Conference. And that becomes the basis for all the rights of the workers. The structure of the ILO is a little bit different. We are a tripartite organization. That means that all decisions at the ILO are taken by representatives from governments, employers, and workers. So everything that we do in the fashion industry is taken and discussed and adopted in a tripartite way. 
So the main issue that we, we work on this industry is to ensure and to promote and to ensure that those international labor standards are at country level. There are lots of areas that are covered by ILO standards, forced labor, collective bargaining, gender equality, working conditions, skills. And in fashion, what are the particular challenges for the fashion sector? This sector, we see specifically questions related to working conditions, like uh, low wages, like long working hours, sexual harassment of workers, and uh, the trade unions are not sometimes respected. So we, we have problems related to occupational safety and health, for instance. So those are uh, specific questions that are not only in this industry, but they are really a problem there. Last year, we discussed what would be the future of work being 100 years. And we see that there are so many challenges ahead of us. I mean, if you think about how the robotization... I was about to say, so bots, yeah. I mean, how yeah. many jobs... We could lose what percentage of jobs? Half? Yes, yes. The ILO calculated, and that's a lot. <laughs> but you also have environmental changes, so climate changes there, and, and then this can affect the industry as well. Demographic variations will also affect the, the level of consumers. And you have also a change in the way this sector works and uh, so there are so many challenges in facing us ahead but there are also so many opportunities so you can increase your productivity you can increase the level the skills levels of workers you can change the way that you produce things you will produce things in a more sustainable way affecting less the environment. So there are challenges, but there are also opportunities that we need to take on board. I need to say as well that this is a very diverse industry. When mm-hmm. we are talking about working conditions, they are very different from Europe to Asia, for instance, or from Latin America. So you see different types of production and different types of systems. And those challenges appears in different segments of what we call the global supply chain. Of course, fashion is enormous and diverse and the problems vary from country to country. But one of the kinds of trends I think that we've seen as production has raced offshore is a race to the bottom where certain players will look for the cheapest labour in the cheapest place that's the least regulated. What are the tools that the ILO has in order to ensure that workers aren't treated without dignity or treated badly or not paid enough or discriminated against? I think our main tool is the Better Work Programme. It's a joint ILO International Finance Corporation Programme that was created about 15 years ago. And nowadays they are operating in 1,700 factories that employs more than 2 million workers in nine countries. So this program provides a technical assistance directly at the workplace level. So they look into the problems and they provide assistance, they train people, they build the dialogue between managers and workers and so on that will be help addressing those challenges that we referred before at workplace level in a daily technical advice and training for the people involved in the industry. So this is also important, for instance, if you need to discuss what are the improvements that needs to be made and what are the new methods of work or production that needs to be integrated. Do you think that we have the standards in place or they are in existence in order to clean up the fashion industry? We have at the ILO 190 standards that covers all the questions related to labour for all the sectors. So I, I really think that we 
it's not a lack of standards that we have. Moreover, it's a lack of enforcement. We have a mechanism in place, the ILO, what we call the supervisory mechanisms that every year revises the application of those standards, not only in, in this sector. And we have also a complaint mechanism that uh, organizations at a country level can complain that there is some standards that are not applied. So I think that we, we want more and more this system to be strengthened and be known and can be used by people and by stakeholders and actors everywhere. What we have seen is that at the very bottom of the supply chain, we found similar problems like lower wages, like lack of respect for workers' rights, problems related to safety and health, problems related to gender and violence and harassment, and etc. So those are the main problems that we see that um, usually found at the very bottom of the production line. We still continue to hear these stories about workers being paid poverty wages or kept in poverty wages and, you know, not being allowed to unionise. And obviously the complexity in different countries makes it not easy to generalise. But what's missing? This is the million dollar question. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I think it's a systematic change. For instance, when you think about employment and jobs, you also need to ensure that those workers have received the appropriate training. If you talk about wages, and this is, as you said, is a major problem in producing countries, you need to have a system in place where trade unions have the capacity to negotiate agreements. And you need also to train the factory managers so they can understand and they can respect the workers' representatives and they can also improve productivity and competitiveness because that will also benefit the workers at the long run. So I think that there are so many things that can and needs to be done. And Mm. this is, as I said, needs to be done in an integrated way, in a systematic way. So there is not only one thing that you can change and then poof. It's such a hard one, right? Because unless we change people's values, then this stuff will continue to be piecemeal or not quite done, right? I don't know. This was why the ILO was created in the first place. So in 1919, so it's, we, we're talking about so many changes that happened so from there. And yet we still have so many problems. And just can we have a word about the current situation with COVID-19? Because there are, of course, added challenges that the whole industry is facing now in terms of cancelled orders, in terms of workers being left without pay and maybe bankruptcies in the industry too. What's your take on the particular challenges of this pandemic period for the fashion industry? The virus posed an enormous challenge for the industry. Perhaps this is one of the sectors that were more affected by COVID-19. Basically, what we saw from, from the beginning was that Uh, several orders were cancelled, so factories need to shut down. In in industrialized countries, shops closed. And then workers that produce the garments that we use were laid off without pay. And that, at some point, it was really a breakup of the whole system and some urgent action was needed. So uh, the IOE, the International Organization of Employers, and the trade union global movement launched with the support of ILO what we call call to action. This is a commitment that is signed by more than 100 companies and that's really willing to take action by supporting an income for workers 
and for supporting the companies to not close down and resume their operations. So this is an immediate commitment, but there are other things that we need to do in the medium term. I mean, 100 companies is not, in the scheme of things, very many, right? So what happens to all of those who do not sign up for you know, actions like this? How much of the industry is not doing anything? I mean, I think that 100 companies is quite significant if you see the size size of those companies. And also because this is a call that was initiated by the International Organization of Employers, that is a big organization that represents companies from all over the world. So the level of representation is is really high. But of course, we need to get more people on board, more companies on board, more other initiatives as well. They are mostly welcome. How might regulation and standards have improved this situation for workers? Is there a roadmap to ensuring that workers are better looked after when things like the pandemic happen or perhaps natural disasters happen or, you know? Well, some of the standards related to the very core of the impact of COVID. So we have standards related to wages. This is really important. We have standards related to social protection. I mean, the guarantee of the basic income or other source of protection Mm. for, for those workers. We have standards that relate to occupational safety and health. So now that companies are reopening and resuming their operations, they need also to look after the safety of their workers. They need to create a new environment that uh, garments can be produced in a safe way. So I think standards can be the basis on how this industry operates. And this is a general thing. This is for everyone everywhere. So this is a question that can be used as a roadmap, as you said, to improve the conditions of work. But I want to tell you something. COVID was created a big and major impact, and we're still trying to deal with that. But it's also created a great opportunity because... The question, for instance, of environmental issues, we are talking about how to build back better the sector. And now we can have the opportunity that to bring labor and social standards together. And that is, for me, the biggest challenge ahead. So we cannot look only to labor issues or look only to environmental issues. We really need to have an integrated approach and discuss how the industry will continue operated in this new environment with this broad look. Okay, can we just talk about Rana Plaza at this point? Because I think that while you can't compare that with what we're dealing with now with COVID, they were both or could both be seen as kind of watershed moments when the fashion industry in particular really had to face what was wrong with itself, if you like. After Rana Plaza, the ILO introduced, it's called Improving Working Conditions in the Ready-Made Garment Sector Programme. Um, and I've been reading a report from the end of the first phase in 2017. A lot's changed, obviously would all be familiar in the industry with the signing of the Bangladesh Accord on Fire and Safety. But factory disasters and fires and accidents continue to come. So I'd love your take on how much you think there is left to do when it comes to workplace safety. Well, Hana Plaza was a turning point for the industry. For the first time, the world realised out together, consumers, brands, companies, governments, the risks involved in the production, in this fast fashion model, and have a look into it and decided that there is something that needs to change. So our immediate reaction to, to Bangladesh was this project that was implemented and the support to the accord that accord is is a multi-stakeholder initiative Mm. that um, looks into making the necessary changes in the factories to comply with safety standards 
So the ILO was involved from the beginning to try to guarantee this and to try to also help the workers or help establishing uh, compensation for those workers. So this is, was the immediate action. But that gave us lessons, lessons to find solutions in other places. The situation continues to be bad in some cases, but there was a lot that was happened since then. And we see a lot of progress every day. But we still need to continue to work. As you said, fires continue to happen. But we now we know the problem and we know the solution and we know what has to be done. So I think that this is a big effort that we all need to take to ensure that the lessons from the past can be mm. applied and other mm. accidents can be avoided. Is it always a matter of these kinds of dreadful conditions simply moving elsewhere to less regulated territories? I was thinking about all the fires that I've been reading about recently or in the last couple of years, and it seems like it's moved to India and maybe Bangladesh has improved. But are we constantly kind of chasing this stuff around the world? I don't think that this is moving around. Right. Uh, this is a model of production that was created in the 60s and, and then in the 80s that you outsource your production to low-cost countries. Right. And of course, when you do that, those countries uh, don't have the same institutions and capacities in place to deal with those labor issues that were found. If you think about Europe in the during the industrialization process, you would find the same problems. So what needs to be done is to help those countries to lift the working conditions and build the capacity of governments, employers and workers to deal better with those problems. For instance, one thing that is important for us, that's fundamental for us, it's a competent labor inspection. In the Western countries, you have now a system of labor inspection in place with national legislation and that enforcement measures and so on. So that is needed also in those countries that have entered in the sector. Are you hopeful? You sound hopeful. You said to me before you were positive. I am. <laughs> I've been working at the ILO for 25 years in other issues as well. So, and I see the change happen in, mm. in this one quarter of century. And I truly believe that change starts with our responsibility of understanding the problem and understanding the situation and looking for the adequate solutions. No, not, it's not a solution, one solution that fits all. I think that the solution comes when you bring together people. I don't think that this is something, those problems are something that only one part of the story can solve. It's been really exciting, I think, as an industry for us to see the formation of the UN Alliance for Sustainable Fashion and to see brands come on board and all different players kind of really collaborate on this. What do you think the impact of that has been and where do you see that headed? I think, first of all, it's important that all those agencies that look to different aspects of this sector, they were able to come together. They are talking, they are thinking, they are bringing their knowledge and their products together to think about solutions. So when we are talking about systemic change, we talk about how those organizations all together, meaning the International Trade Center, the United Nations Environmental Program, UNCE. So there are so many organizations in, in the alliance right now. So how we can together promote that change? And that's really important. And that's really, I think, where we can reach more to a broader audience and to engage with more and more people on that. What brought us together was the Sustainable Development Goals. So we all committed to have those 
goals reached by 2030. So to get there, and this is this is really a big challenge. We need to work together. We need to talk to each other and and see what we can jointly do better and more. I think it's the responsibility of all of us. Thank you for listening, my friends. Did you enjoy the show? Let us know. We'd love to hear from you. You can find us online at ethicalfashioninitiative.org and we are on Instagram at ethicalfashion. Just don't shout because I feel like it's quite ah, okay. noisy. Okay, just the rest. Yeah, yeah, go on. I have the syndrome of the... Well, you have silent or the, shouting. <laughs> yeah, no, I have the syndrome of the presenter in, in an old uh, Italian ballroom. Uh, huh. where I, <laughs> I love it. Because I used to be a waiter when I was in university. And the waiter, I used to work in a restaurant, which after dinner was transformed into a ballroom. So... It was fun. So did you say, and now it's time for the dancing? And now, adesso si balla! <laughs> and everybody, boom, boom. <laughs> Can you help spread the word and share our story with your friends on social media? Our mission is to work towards sustainable development and create long-term impact in the communities where we operate. Through extensive training and mentorship, we build capacity and enable artisans to produce for the international market. Through this program, workers are empowered and can lift themselves out of poverty. Not charity, just work. Mm-hmm.